You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, The Case of the Misplaced Belly Button. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about the first compact discs. You know, that technology is basically out of style now. In particular, what was the first CD ever placed on sale to the public? And I'll give you five choices. And I will tell you that each one of these five albums uh, had some benchmark set for a compact disc, but only one was the first one ever on sale to the public. So here are your choices in alphabetical order. Was it one, 52nd Street by Billy Joel? Two, Brother in Arms by Dire Straits? Three, Ein Alpen Symphony performed by the Berlin Philharmonic? Four, Living Eyes by the Bee Gees? Or five, The Visitor by ABBA? Again, which CD title was the first one ever offered for sale to the public? In other words, which was the first one you could go into a store and purchase? Was it 1, 52nd Street by Billy Joel? 2, Brother in Arms by Dire Straits? 3, Ein Alpen Symphony performed by the Berlin Philharmonic? 4, Living Eyes by the Bee Gees? Or 5, The Visitor by ABBA? As always, I'll let you ponder over this question and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Case of the Misplaced Belly Button. And I thought I'd start by asking you if you're an innie or an outie. Now I recall when I was a kid, this is a really, really big deal, but I have to be honest, I haven't put any thought into it since, at least not until I sat down to write this uh, script. Anyway, I was surprised by searching the internet, this is really a concern among parents. Apparently, being an Audi is not the social norm. I was really shocked to find that there were forums filled with parents who are freaking out that their kid has an Audi. And even more unbelievable is that there are people who undergo cosmetic surgery to correct this life-shattering problem. And believe it or not, as I was sitting here writing this story, I couldn't remember if I was an innie or an Audi. I really had to check and find out that I was a little bit of an Audi. I guess that explains all the problems I had getting dates for the 45 years that I was single. It clearly, clearly has made a big, big psychological mess of my life. Anyway, joking aside, this leads me to today's story, which is all about belly buttons. Make that 
belly button, singular, you know, just one belly button. That's the belly button of a Poughkeepsie, New York woman named Virginia O'Hare. Ms. O'Hare was a 42-year-old divorced mother of three when the story hit the press in mid-April of 1979. You see, she had made a decision to undergo the knife and get the so-called tummy tuck surgery to tighten up her stomach area. And the surgery was performed in November of 1974 at Midtown Hospital in Manhattan. When the surgery was completed, Ms. O'Hare decided to sue her doctor, prominent plastic surgeon Dr. Howard Bellin, for $1.5 million because her belly button, get this, was supposedly two inches off center. Her attorney, Theodore Friedman, claimed, quote, The experience caused her emotional shock and anguish, and she came apart at the seams. He also added that Dr. Bellin promised that she would have a, quote, a nice flat belly after the surgery. He did fail to mention to the press that the surgery produces a really big scar that runs across the waist from one hip bone to the other. But it's strategically placed, you know, so that it's hidden by the top of one's undergarments. Now, if you're curious like I was, go to your favorite search engine and search for images of tummy tucks. They are gruesome. I never realized how serious the surgery was until I saw these images. They really are much worse than I thought it would be. Dr. Bellin responded to the charge by stating, quote, The belly button was off ever so slightly, but well within the limits, well within the midline. That's the end of the quote. He estimated that it was one half inch off center at most. One would think that a lawsuit like this wouldn't go anywhere. You know, you would expect that the insurance company would throw a few bucks her way and, you know, and she would just go away. But not in this case. This case ended up in front of a jury of four men and two women. Ms. O'Hare's star witness was Dr. Philip Casson. He was the guy who moved her belly button back to its correct location about one year after the supposed botched surgery. As it expect, her lawyer went out of his way to show the jury just how injurious this was to her life. It supposedly took a big toll on her intimate life, if you know what I mean. The surgery cut her, quote, in half physically and emotionally. The belly button was described as being, a, a, quote, a large deformed hole, and the resulting star being, quote, of significant thickness. Dr. Bellin, in response, testified that the reason the belly button was off-center was because he had to repair an umbilical hernia that he discovered during the operation. Dr. Bellin's team painted Ms. O'Hare as a plastic surgery junkie. You know, they're all over TV today. And prior to the tummy tuck, Dr. Bellin had performed successful operations on both her nose and her eyelids. He also performed an eye lift for her boyfriend. In total, over her lifetime, she had nine previous surgeries on her nose, although Ms. O'Hare claimed that these were not done for vanity's sake. Instead, she claimed to have suffered a broken nose at age 11 after being hit by a football. There was an eight-day trial, and the jury took just four hours to reach a verdict in the case. And to the shock of everyone, on May 2nd of 1979, Ms. O'Hare was awarded, get this, $854,000. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $3 million today. And how they came up with this amount is quite interesting. 
They gave her $100,000 for pain and suffering, $4,219 to cover the cost of the belly button relocation surgery, and $750,000 for loss of earnings. Personally, I find the $750,000 for the loss of wages to be the most intriguing. It got me thinking as to what type of job would require the exposure of one's navel. Being a public school teacher myself, I can tell you that is certainly not one of them. So maybe she was a belly dancer, a world-class surfer, or I don't know, a 42-year-old bikini model? To my surprise, it was none of these possibilities. During the trial, it was pointed out that, quote, her sense of self-worth was damaged, and that, get this, quote, her ability to function as the owner of a Poughkeepsie employment agency was impaired. Yes, she owned an employment agency. As soon as the decision was handed down, Dr. Bellin and his lawyers made, of course, plans to appeal. Dr. Bellin said, quote, talk about the high cost of medical care. Here is where the money goes, $854,000 to a woman who is physically able to work. What are you going to give somebody who loses an arm or a leg and can't legitimately work? That's the end of the quote. I'm sure you're going to be shocked by this, but it was widely reported that Ms. O'Hare was satisfied with the verdict. Who would have ever guessed? She's quoted as saying, A centered belly button is a valuable feminine attribute. Cher made millions on hers. Just one month later, the lawyers for both sides met behind closed doors in State Supreme Court Justice Alvin Klein's chambers. On June 5th, it was announced that they had agreed to a reduced settlement of $200,000. That's still a lot of money for those days. The New York Times reported that, quote, Mrs. O'Hare's attorney was said to have agreed to the settlement to block a planned appeal that could have reduced the award even further or wiped it out. That's the end of the quote. And that was the last of Ms. O'Hare's belly button making the news. Dr. Bellin had some fame prior to this trial. He had been featured in a 1975 Barbara Walters interview with his then-wife, the late Christina Pelosi, and they had discussed how they had a successful open marriage. In fact, it was so successful that it ended in divorce in 1982. The couple was well-known at the time for throwing extravagant parties for the rich and famous of the 70s. Today, Dr. Bellin is one of those celebrity plastic surgeons that you see on TV all the time. He's been featured on Oprah, Geraldo, MTV, you know, the various news programs, and he's appeared on the reality TV show, The Real Housewives of New York City. You know, real as in if we, you know, we've had a lot of plastic surgery done to our bodies. Now, I did skip one very, very important detail in telling this story. For some reason, every person I've told the story to has asked me the same question. Was the belly button off-center to the left, or was the belly button off-center to the right? Honestly, I'm not sure what difference it makes to the story, but for the sake of completeness, it was off-centered to the right. So you still haven't answered the question, are you an innie or are you an outie? Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, a few words from our retro sponsor. Alka-Seltzer, speedy Alka-Seltzer. Man, I feel better. That's what you'll say when you try Alka-Seltzer for fast relief from acid indigestion. Alka-Seltzer for that feel-better feeling. Alka-Seltzer reduces excess stomach acidity with instant alkalizing action. And it works so gently, too. Thousands of sparkling bubbles soothe and settle the stomach and help bring relief with gentle, effervescent action. So next time acid indigestion makes you uncomfortable, get that feel-better feeling with speedy Alka-Seltzer. It's tangy, refreshing. You'll like Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer, speedy Alka-Seltzer. feel-better feeling comes in record time. When your stomach feels upset for relief, don't you forget Alka-Seltzer. I have to say that's not quite as catchy as their plop-plop-fizz-fizz slogan, you know, that appeared in later years. That commercial for Alka-Seltzer appeared on the October 12, 1953 episode of the radio music show, get this, Alka-Seltzer Time. Alka-Seltzer was first marketed in 1931 by the Dr. Miles Medicine Company, which later changed its name to Miles Laboratories. The company developed the product under the direction of Mikey Wiseman, a company scientist. The company was purchased by Bayer in 1979, and the Miles name was dropped in 1995. The product has a fairly simple list of ingredients. It's just aspirin, sodium bicarbonate, aka baking soda, and citric acid. The Alka-Seltzer name has a straightforward derivation. The alka comes from the alkaline nature of the sodium bicarbonate. Then you just drop two tablets in water and the baking soda reacts with the citric acid, producing carbon dioxide gas, you know, the fizz or the seltzer. Without me hopping into my science teacher mode and getting too technical here, let me just say that the reaction of the baking soda and the citric acid produces sodium citrate, which acts as an antacid to help with your upset stomach. The purpose of the aspirin is fairly obvious. That's to help reduce minor pain. And one reason that Alka-Seltzer works so well is that it's already a liquid. You see, you don't have to wait for the pills to dissolve, so it quickly goes to work on what ails you. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call news of the weird past. And today's stories are all from the 1960s. Our first tidbit is dated December 5th of 1960, which reported that a Kansas City man named Lino Baldwin had purchased a house in the northeastern section of the city the previous month. In an effort to get a bit of income out of the property, he decided to clean out the five unused garages in the back and of course rent them out. There was a surprise awaiting him in one of those garages. There he found an olive green wooden chest that contained the following items. You ready for this? There were two sawed-off shotguns, one submachine gun, one 30 caliber semi-automatic rifle, three Halloween masks, there were four navy cold weather masks, 
eight pair of gloves, eight hats, two money bags, and two pair of handcuffs. Hmm, this sounds like something from a Roadrunner Wiley Coyote cartoon. You know, an Acme do-it-yourself bank robbery kit. Our next tidbit is dated June 12th of 1964, and that's when the Beatles arrived in Sydney, Australia for a series of concerts. John Lennon was quoted as saying, We have no trouble keeping up with the pace, but our popularity can't last more than a couple of years. He added, quote, When our lights go out, I'll be happy enough. It will give me time to look around and see the things that I'm missing now. Lennon also stated, quote, Don't get me wrong, though. I really enjoy doing what I'm doing now, and I'll be sorry to see the end of it all. We all realize that our popularity is a temporary thing, and when it fades, we'll be ready. And our last tidbit is dated February 2nd of 1967, and that's when officials at the Martinsburg Veterans Administration in West Virginia discuss one of their most unusual patients. While his name was not mentioned, a 78-year-old man came to the VA hospital in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, for treatment of an unmentioned physical ailment. During his general examination, the doctor noticed that the elderly man had a very unusual set of false teeth in his mouth. It turns out that the poor man had lost all of his teeth and he'd been making his own dentures for the previous 40 years. His methodology changed as he improved the design over the years, but this is basically what he did, if I understood the article correctly. The first thing that he did was to make an impression of the inside and the gums of his mouth with plaster of Paris, which was then filled with furnace cement to make a cast. His next step was to cut a billiard ball in half with a hacksaw and hollow the two halves out with a small file to resemble the cast that he had just made. Finally, he carved the teeth into the exterior of the billiard ball, and voila, he had a set of false teeth. He found that the billiard ball dentures wore out in about six months, so he then switched to bone teeth. But those wore out very quickly also. So eventually he settled on using a combination of furnace cement and liquid solder. But as most people know, solder is very soft, so he inserted, get this, wood screws into the rear molars to give them extra strength. The man said that he had lost his teeth when he was very young and had six different sets of professionally made dentures over the years, but only one set ever fit properly. When he lost that set around 1925, he decided that he could make some for himself. The set that he was wearing at the time of his hospital visit was made 25 years prior. The kind folks of the VA hospital made the man a new set of acrylic dentures, which he said fit better than any set he had ever made by himself. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked which CD title was the first one ever offered for sale to the public. And your choices were 1. 52nd Street by Billy Joel, 2. Brother in Arms by Dire Straits, three Ein Alpen Symphony performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, four Living Eyes by the Bee Gees, and five The Visitor by ABBA. As I had mentioned, it turns out that each of these CDs were all first at something, so let me start with the ones that were not the answer. Now I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this, but it was not Richard Strauss's Ein Alpen Symphony, which was performed by the Berlin Philharmonic. 
This title was the first CD ever pressed. It was done, you know, basically as a test of the technology, but it was not released at the time. The public's first look at the new technology involved a demonstration of the Bee Gees Living Eyes on the BBC in 1981, but you still couldn't buy them. ABBA's The Visitor's Album has the honor of being the first CD title to be pressed for sale, but for whatever reason, it was not put out on the market right away. And the last one that it's not is Dire Straits' Brother in Arms, which wasn't released in any form until 1985, but it does have the honor of being the first CD to sell 1 million copies. That leaves just one title from my list, and the only one that I own, that's Billy Joel's 52nd Street, which was released to the public for sale in Japan on October 1st of 1982. As a last little tidbit, uh, David Bowie was the first artist to have his entire back catalog converted to CD in 1985. That was 15 studio albums and four greatest hits packages. You know, that got me thinking about my first CD. It was none of these. When I purchased my first CD player back in 1985, I really had a hard time finding something to play on it. The only store that I knew that sold CDs at the time was a store called Crazy Eddie's, which was about 70 miles from my home, and they stocked just eight titles at the time. My first CD was Sports by Huey Lewis and the News. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the misplaced belly button, as well as our question of the day on the first CD ever released, listening to our retro sponsor, Alka-Seltzer, and of course the news of the weird past tidbits, which included the Acme bank robbery kit, John Lennon's quotes about you know fame being fleeting, and the guy that made his false teeth from billiard balls and wood screws. That's my favorite of the three. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They're Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. I will be posting additional resources, which includes PDFs of some of the original research documents, additional comments that I uh, have on the podcast, and some related links. They can be found on my Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's one word, useless information podcast. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, you can do so through the Facebook page. You can use my email, which is useless at steve. .silverman.name, or you can go to my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and there's a link there. 
Uh, anyway, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.